Now I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Why the hell are they rebooting 80s classic Magnum P.I.? Now unlike a lot of stuff I grew up with, Magnum is actually a classic of its genre. A lot of 80s stuff has a certain appeal nowadays. Shows like Knight Rider and the A-Team are still enjoyable fluff, but others like Riptide or TJ Hooker are borderline unwatchable. Magnum P.I. stands up though. Sure, the show is remembered for Tom Selleck's moustache and general attractiveness to women, his short shorts and his Hawaiian shirts, but scratch the surface and watch a few episodes and you'll find a show that was actually a noir-infused character-based drama that took itself just the right amount of seriously. Magnum juggled hard-hitting drama and adroit comedic character interplay with ease, often changing in the same scene. This is not an easy thing to do without causing your audience tonal whiplash, and the fact that Magnum pulled it off with ease is something the series never really gets credit for. The characterisation should also not be underestimated. Over the course of its eight seasons, we learned everything there was to learn about Thomas Sullivan Magnum, from his family life and background to more frivolous but character-defining elements like his favourite movie and author. We knew his favourite food, his favourite ball team and his favourite day of the year. Magnum's character was so well defined that the writers didn't forget to give him unlikable traits as well, something a lot of people forget when creating a fully rounded character. Magnum was easygoing and loyal, likeable and funny, but he was also capable of great selfishness and frequently used anybody around him to get what he wanted. The supporting cast wasn't underdeveloped either. TC, Theodore Calvin, played by Roger E. Mosley, could have been the token black guy, but he was established as an intelligent and capable man in his own right. A big supporter of children's groups due to his own rough upbringing, TC also had little character traits that defined him. After the pilot, he never drank alcohol, something that has led fans to speculate that he may have had a drinking problem at one point, due to a specific line of dialogue from his ex-wife in the episode Missing Melody. Unlike Magnum, he's not a beer and a pizza guy. He likes fine food and refined entertainment such as the ballet and the opera, and is a big poetry lover. Apparently, Mosley saw some research as he was tackling the role that said that black men were never depicted on television as being well-read or educated, so he insisted that this was played up in his character. He's frequently Magnum's conscience, and his interest in higher art forms endears him to uptight Brit Jonathan Higgins, a friendship that is actually quite beautiful. Imagine anyone else calling Higgins Higgy Baby and getting away with it. But TC does. Speaking of Higgins, Jonathan Hilleman, a Texan by birth, created one of the best British characters ever seen on a US TV show. Higgins could have been a horrendous caricature, but Hilleman's performance gave Higgins many layers that a lesser actor wouldn't have brought to the role. His constant culture clashes with Magnum, in addition to being played for laughs, were just as often played for pathos, and the similarity between the two men was often up front. Both Higgins and Magnum served and nearly died for their countries. Both men were fiercely patriotic, yet both men see the problems with their countries as well. They may even be overly loyal to a version of both their homelands that never actually existed, but both wished it. 
Over the years, Higgins and Magnum developed a friendship that was wonderful to watch, and if Higgins made Magnum more serious, Magnum made Higgins lighten up a bit. The ensemble was rounded out by Orville Rick Wright, played by Larry Minetti. Rick ran the King Kamehameha Club and fancied himself a Humphrey Bogart type. Rick had underworld contacts and was a tad shady, but those same contacts came in useful whenever Magnum needed help. Rick was perhaps the least defined of the original cast, but even he has moments, and his past finally catches up with him near the end of the series when he finds himself in jail. Over the years, Magnum created some really enjoyable and enduring hours of television. Character-based dramas like Home from the Sea, where Magnum recalls his father's death whilst facing a near-death experience of his own, rubbed shoulders with out-and-out comedy shows like Paper War, where Magnum and Higgins' personal conflicts are escalated to ludicrous proportions. Dark and grim episodes like Laura, in which Frank Sinatra hunts for his granddaughter's rapist, or Death and Taxes, in which Magnum must hunt a serial killer, lived alongside four-character plays like Operation Silent Night, where the main characters are stranded on an island on Christmas Eve when TC's chopper malfunctions. Explorations of what war meant to the characters was exploding memories of forever and black and white. The series even got surreal and experimental in episodes like Limbo, where a dying Magnum must help his friends one last time, Flashback, which was set in 1936, and the monochromatic Murder by Night. Unlike other shows of the time, Magnum aged. He started needing glasses and noticed himself creaking a little bit. One episode, 40, centres around Magnum's melancholia at hitting the Big 4-0, Max Back is a lovely little exploration of what death means to Magnum and how his life has been surrounded by it. There was also an incredible lineup of supporting and recurring characters, almost unprecedented in this era. DA, Carol Baldwin, Colonel Buck Green, Icepick, Lieutenant Tanaka, Michelle, Mac, Luther B. Gillis, Maggie Poole and Agatha Chumley all added to the tapestry of the show, making it seem like it really was set in one location. These are all things that the show earned over time rather than rushing it and making it seem forced or unnatural, and these relationships blossomed and changed over the years, as relationships do in real life. In Max Back, when a depressed and drunken Magnum reams off all the names of the people he's lost to Higgins, it has an emotional resonance for the audience, as we were with him when he lost them all. When, after eight years, Thomas Magnum turned to the audience at the end of the final episode, said goodnight, and turned off his own show... It really did feel like the end of an era. Over the years, Magnum P.I. has been rumoured to be making a comeback on numerous occasions. In the early 2000s, Tom Selleck talked about a movie pitch he and Tom Clancy had put together. And later in the decade, both George Clooney and Matthew McConaughey were rumoured to be taking over the role in a big screen version. Most recently, a continuation focusing on Magnum's daughter, Lily, apparently made it as far as the pitch stage. All these versions stalled for one simple reason. Tom Selleck is Magnum. He defined the role. He worked with series co-creator Don Bellasorio, making him who he was. He rejected the original pilot script as he didn't want Magnum to be a perfect Superman. He took on co-producer roles as the series went on. He apparently looked after his co-stars, allowing them considerable input into their own characters. Hillerman called it the best eight years of my life, and Minetti and Selleck both ran a restaurant for a while called The Black Orchid, named after one of their favourite episodes. John Hillerman sadly passed away in 2018, and this seems to have put any idea of a continuation out of people's minds. 
but the prospect of Magnum returning was obviously far too tantalising, not to mention lucrative, to Universal Television. And after years of dragging their feet, they finally greenlit a reboot pilot, followed by an equally quick series order. Now, with all of this talk of how Selleck is Magnum, the question of who could fill out his Detroit Tigers baseball cap was answered quite unconventionally when actor Jay Hernandez was announced for the role. Hernandez is a fine actor, best known to me from The Expanse and the Hostel movies, although he does have the pleasure of having shagged Mila Kunis in Bad Mums. However, no matter how good he is, Hernandez has some large short shorts to fill. Higgins has been gender-swapped for some reason, and is now played by Perdicia Weeks from The Tudors and Penny Dreadful. Going into this, I hoped that producers wouldn't remove the antagonistic relationship of the original, but I would also imagine a will-they-won't-they aspect to the relationship will be unavoidable, which is a shame. If Higgins and Magnum do warm to each other, I would hope for a more brother-sister vibe than lovers. Stephen Hill replaces Roger Mosley as TC, and despite extensive credits, I didn't know his work at all. And finally, Zachary Knighton steps into the loafers as Rick, another one I knew nothing about. The first episode of the reboot is called I Saw the Sunrise, a nice echo of one of the more memorable episodes of the original show, a two-parter called Did You See the Sunrise, and even shows a character, Sebastian Nuzo, played by James Whitmore Jr. in the original, and Dominic Lombardozo here. Whether the character and the plot are similar, I guess we'll see. The pilot was written by Peter Lenkoff and Eric Guggenheim. Lenkoff is better known for the quite successful Hawaii Five O reboot, but also the awful MacGyver do-over, so the jury was still out there. Guggenheim also worked on Hawaii Five O and Parenthood, a show I've never watched, so again, the pedigree was uncertain. What wasn't uncertain was the director. Justin Lin fueled up with high octane whilst working on the Fast and the Furious franchise, and also co-wrote and directed the best of the recent Star Trek movies, Star Trek Beyond. The trailer for the show, which dropped over the summer of 2018, didn't really fill me with confidence, but it wasn't objectively awful either, so again, this could still go either way. Would this be the 2003 Battlestar Galactica, or the already forgotten 2011 version of Charlie's Angels? The reboot pilot opens with the scene that seemed to cause the most consternation online. Magnum is seen Halo jumping from outer space, conducting a ludicrous rescue of prisoners of war in Iraq, and then engaging in an even more ridiculous car chase. Taken on its own, this is a pretty good action-packed set piece that drags the viewer in, kicking and screaming, but it's all bait and switch from the producers. This isn't actually Magnum and his friends performing this during do, rather it is an over-the-top sequence from Robin Master's new novel, Sure, the rescue did happen, but not as elaborately or as dramatically as depicted in the book. Apparently, this updated version of Robin bases his books on Magnum and Co.'s real-life exploits, which is a far cry from the unobtrusive everyman approach of the original show. With the main characters introduced, we get down to the business of setting up the show properly, with Magnum, Rick, TC and Nuzo all established as military men who served in Afghanistan and have left all that behind to live in the paradise of Hawaii. It's very much a case of something old, something new in this opening episode. The writers show they have all the basics of Magnum's character down pat. He's seen on his surf ski, all the main four were the Cross of Lorraine, as they did in the original. Magnum is not above using his friends to get what he needs, and there's a voiceover with dialogue referring to Magnum's little voice. And, of course, I know what you're thinking. TC runs Island Hoppers and pilots the same gaudily coloured chopper he did in the 80s, and Rick still runs a bar and is still connected. 
Nowhere is it mentioned if this is the King Kamehameha Club of the original. There are also references to Magnum having been nearly married and other familiar characters like Lieutenant Tanaka and Colonel Buck Green, here a captain, make appearances. The actors play off each other well, with an easy camaraderie, and if Jay Hernandez doesn't quite have the charisma and charm of Tom Selleck, well that's because he's not Tom Selleck and it's not really fair to try and make him be Tom Selleck. Hernandez isn't bad at all in the title role, although in addition to not having the same easygoing charm, he also doesn't cut as imposing a figure. Selleck's 6 foot 4 inch frame having been replaced by Hernandez's slightly less impressive 5 foot 8. It's a tad more difficult to believe Magnum is as good as he is when he's quite slight of build, but Hernandez doesn't make a bad stab at the role and certainly doesn't embarrass himself. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of Magnum's childish sense of humour, maybe an appearance from the gorilla mask or the rubber chicken, but he isn't as bad as we feared, but nor is he as convincing as we'd hoped. Is he Thomas Magnum? Not yet but he may get there. Also in the old category, Magnum wheels out the old Ferrari 308 after his newer model gets destroyed, but he destroys this one as well, which is sacrilegious. Rick and TC don't get a lot to do in this episode, relegated to making quips and providing Magnum with moral support, and if you know your Magnum lore or watched the opening credits, then you'll figure out pretty quickly that Nuzo isn't long for this world. Speaking of the opening credits, one thing they dared not change was the theme. When Robin Masters offered me the job as live-in security consultant as a way to supplement my PI business, I jumped at it. Meet my best friends. Make a hell of a team. That's Rick. If you want something on the island, Rick is the man to see. Hey, what about me? That's TC. He runs the best helicopter tour business in Hawaii. That's Sebastian Nuzo. The four of us spent some time in a POW camp in Afghanistan. Nuzo saved my life. And I couldn't save his. This is Juliet Higgins, former British intelligence in my six. She works here as Robin's property manager. Easy, lads. Friends like those come around once in a lifetime. But maybe I'm wrong about that. It's a bit more of a dance version of the theme than I recall, and it's, and it's certainly a lot shorter, but it's nice to still see it around. On the new side of the fence is Higgins. She's not as uptight as Hillerman's version, although she still refers to Zeus and Apollo as the lads. Perhaps rather sensibly, she doesn't get to yell, oh my god, at any point. This version of Higgins is no longer a war veteran, but a disavowed MI6 agent, which I'm sure we'll get some play later in the series. Maybe they could get Timothy Dalton to show up as an old friend. As I feared, the relationship isn't as antagonistic as it was, although Padisha Weeks has a nice line in withering put-downs. So, as far as the characters go, all is well and good. Where this pilot really falls down, though, is the plot, which is really silly. Nuzo, owns a diving and salvage operation, is hired by some guys to locate a sunken boat loaded with Saddam's gold. Once he finds it, he's murdered, and Magnum is on the case to find out who killed his friend. Hawaii looks magnificent in HD, and I imagine this won't harm the tourist industry, but the plot is really given short shrift. It's all wrapped up far too quickly and offhandedly to matter that much. Nods to the old show, the title of the episode, Newzo, and other smaller examples like Magnum bringing donuts to bribe information out of a Navy official are all cute, but don't really matter in the long run. 
The writers are letting our familiarity with the characters substitute for real characterization, and apparently hoping we're so enabled with the familiar trappings that we'll give things like story logic a pass. This version of Magnum owes a lot to more recent successful shows like Hawaii Five-0 and NCIS, moving along at a cracking pace and concentrating on the procedural aspects at the expense of the human drama. And that's the real problem. The real Thomas Magnum curred when people were killed, especially his friends. Witness the scene from Max Back I mentioned at the top of the show, whereas he and Magnum and co Burley bat an eye at finding Nuzo's dead body. TC rests a hand on Rick's shoulder and that's about as far as it goes. Speaking of Rick, no reason is given for his name other than Orville Wright being a bit silly. In the original, Rick had a fascination with Bogey that explained the connection, whereas here, no one cares. Maybe they think the modern-day audience won't know who Humphrey Bogart is. By far the most interesting character, ironically, is Higgins, but that's possibly because she's nothing like the original, to the point where she feels like a completely new character. Had this been a show about a disavowed MI6 agent trying to build a new life for herself in Hawaii as a private detective. This would have been a better show, but it wouldn't have had the brand recognition CBS and Universal are so desperately courting. Also, that would have been burn notice and not Magnum. Ultimately, this was a damp squib. It certainly wasn't awful, but it lacked the depth of the recent Lethal Weapon revival or the original show. Granted, this was only the first episode and things could improve, but this is a show that really needs to decide what it wants to be. It can't ride the coattails of our affections for the original for long, especially as the producers must be hoping that at least some of the audience won't have any recollection of the original and embrace this on its own merits. That begins, as one might expect, in episode 2. Once the initial new car smell wears off, the series has to tell its own stories, but still in the vein of what people expect from Magnum P.I. As such, the second episode, From the Head Down, did very well. After a pretty funny cold open where Magnum is roping Higgins into helping with a cheating husband case, something the new Magnum finds as distasteful as the original, Magnum is hired by Apollo Creed himself, Carl Weathers, to locate a £300 fish he just caught in exchange for a share of the sales profits, which apparently could be as high as $350,000. Magnum, short of cash as ever, having been forced to pay for the two Ferraris he wrecked last week, takes the case. Of course, this being Magnum... Not everything goes according to plan. First off, there's no way Magnum could have had the Ferrari repaired. It was completely wrecked. That said, Higgins and Magnum's verbal sparring at the beginning is well done, although Hernandez is still a little bit off. I can't quite say what it is. He's almost too laid back, which kind of counteracts my criticism that he's not quite laid back enough in the first episode. I don't know. I assume he'll get there. He does have pretty good chemistry with TC and Rick, and their banter is handled well throughout. The standout here, though, is Perdicia Weeks once again, here managing to take a lot of Hilleman's Higgins and updating it for the modern day. Higgins is still cultured, opinionated, and highly competent, but with a wry sense of humour. Her interplay with Hernandez is perfectly played, and the scene where they go on a date, actually Magnum leeching off Higgins' contacts once again, is genuinely funny. There are nice nods to the original once more. Higgins is building an elaborate model of a boat. Magnum has a scene where, while shaving, he checks out what he'll look like with a moustache. And there is even an oh my god from Higgins and a gag revolving around Magnum's entry into the estate. The plot is, if not better than last time round, at least like one of the more frivolous Magnum installments, like the ugliest dog in Hawaii, where Magnum was hired to find a dog. 
We even see an old Da Nang Vietnam baseball cap and learn that Magnum's father was now in Nam. The second installment also benefits from slowing down a bit. By the nature, pilots or first episodes need to grab the viewer, and with a show like this, that's through the action and spectacle. The episode focused more on character interplay, dialogue and performance, and it was all the better for it. So I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Why did they reboot Magnum? Well, my little voice initially told me that it was another attempt to coast by on nostalgia at the expense of any real creativity, but going off the second show more than the first, this version of Magnum has potential. Sure, Tom Selleck will always be Thomas Magnum, but Hawaii isn't referred to as the Big Island for nothing. Maybe there's room enough for both of them. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night looking for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. (coughs) Oh, I don't know why I do that to myself. Look, none of that is true. I'm not Daredevil, Marvel's blind lawyer by day and superhero by night. I'm J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. I used to read Daredevil comics, enjoy Daredevil comics, and talk about Daredevil comics, and then I kind of stopped. Well, now I'm back with a new version of the old show. Daredevil Legends is the show where Daredevil, his allies, and his enemies all get put under a scope, get examined, and get discussed on a weekly basis. It's everything that you once loved in a Daredevil podcast, and much, much more to boot. So join me and Marvel's Man Without Fear and his enemies and allies every Sunday at DaredevilPodcast.com, iTunes, and the podcatcher of your choice. Take the dare at DaredevilPodcast.com. Daredevil Legends, the podcast without fear. And so to Lethal Weapon, returning for its third season after the shit show that was the behind-the-scenes drama towards the end of season two. When the dust settled, Clay Crawford, who played the star of the show, Martin Riggs, was fired, and Damon Wayans, Roger Mayfield Murtaugh, was all set to carry on the show with a new partner. I'll be brutally honest, I had no interest in watching a Lethal Weapon sans Crawford, but a lot of people have been in touch to ask me what I think of it via social medias and other manners, so I thought, well, alright, I will at least give the first episode a fur crack of the whip. Over the hiatus, things got really ugly in Lethal Weapon land, to the point where Crawford finally broke his silence in a lengthy podcast, where he talked about how, from his point of view, everything that was being said was bullshit, and Wayans had actually checked out of the show after the pilot. All of this off-screen bickering has long since passed erring one's dirty laundry, and settled into burning one's laundry in front of however many people wish to watch. Still... The show must go on, and it was quickly announced that Sean William Scott, Stifler himself, was to join the show, but not as a relative of Riggs, as previously rumoured, nor as Riggs himself in a recasting move that would probably not have gone down well. Having Scott play a new character was probably for the best. The first episode of the new season, a season that has only been picked up for 13 episodes as of this recording, sees Scott as Wesley Cole, another damaged cop, transferred to the LAPD after a traumatic experience abroad. Murtaugh, meanwhile, has spent six months in mourning for his partner, who was declared DOA upon arriving at the hospital. There was no funeral, no moment for the rest of the characters to mourn Riggs' passing. After the pronouncement of death, we move on as if Riggs were a minor supporting character and not, you know, the central character in the drama. Murtaugh and Cole cross paths and their cases seem linked until Murtaugh finds out that Riggs wasn't killed by a massive conspiracy, but by his brother, an angry white kid with a gun. Nevertheless, Murtaugh and Cole continue their investigations, resulting in the usual level of lethal mayhem. Except, it isn't. There's a massive rig-shaped hole at the centre of the show, and it all just feels flat. 
Whatever Crawford and Wayans off-screen issues, on-screen they sparked off each other wonderfully. And that chemistry just isn't present with Scott. It's not that he's bad, he's not by any means, but he has none of Crawford's unpredictability or his dangerous edge. Cole is rather bland, despite the writers trying to give him an edge in that he feels responsible for the death of a child and giving him an estranged wife and daughter. The episode, entitled In the Same Boat, is everything we all thought Lethal Weapon would be when it began, but managed to avoid. Characters with familiar names go through the motions with sporadically good action scenes and unfunny one-liners. Wayans, in one of the few nice things he said about Crawford, did mention in a later interview that Crawford did work with the writers a lot. It's hard, therefore, to say how much creative input he had, but if this was any indication, plus what he said on that podcast interview, it may be that he was instrumental in making the character work a lot more than people have been willing to give him credit for. Based on this episode, Lethal Weapon will probably not be getting a fourth season, the writers having ripped the heart out of the show. Of course, all this may prove moot. Two episodes into the new season, Wayans announced he was quitting the show. Given his ginormous ego, I suspect that this is damage control and he's quitting before the series cancellation can be announced. Either way, though, it's a really shitty way to treat your co-workers. Lethal Weapon will ultimately be remembered for the -the behind-the-scenes shenanigans, which is a real shame, as for its first two seasons, it was a really great show. Now it's not so much a lethal weapon, more of a spud gun. Primarily as a singer or as a poet? I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. You may call him Alias. You may call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And welcome back, and now on to the email section of the show, your feedback, your chance to correspond with me about, well, the stuff that I've been talking about. Gene Hendricks emailed in. Hello, Gene. And uh, I agree with you that the preachy cartoons were less interesting to me, but the knowing is the half the battle stuff did teach some things and is a slightly less horrific way than the Smith the Younger Just Drowned in Canal stuff that you had. I know why they did it, since you have to have some kind of educational content in order for your half-hour toy commercial to work, but I like the stuff that was baked into the story better than having it tacked on at the end. I did watch Battle of the Planets as a kid. That, Robotech and Star Blazers is what got me into anime later in life, to the point that Dr. Bill and I started a whole show talking about the stuff appropriately titled Anime Freaks. Even as a kid, though, Seven Zark Seven never fit. It was probably the fact that the animation never matched up. When I discovered the original Gatchaman, though as the team was given assignments by Dr. Nambu and Galactor was an eco-terrorist organisation, it just made so much more sense. Starblazers did the same thing with the editing out of the more violent stuff, but there wasn't any new animation there. That's probably why Starblazers holds up better than Battle of the Planets, in my opinion. You are correct in that Keop was just a kid named Junpei, pronounced Jinpei in the original. I think they made him a clone or android or whatever in this version because he had such over-the-top reactions and they could play it off as his program going wonky. 
As for Dungeons & Dragons, that's something that was right up my alley. I was a tabletop gamer from early on, and this was just wonderful. Being based on the first edition of the game, each character had their own unique personality and powers, and they could beat anything if they could, could work together. Like you said, it was a pretty dark premise, with teenagers being lost in another world. The one episode, Beauty and the Bog Beast, where they find a portal to get home but decide to stay because Eric was turned into a bog beast, a type of frog monster and needed a cure, was particularly heart-wrenching. Spider-Man and his amazing friends was a great show and one of the reasons I got into comics. No, it didn't make sense that the poor trio were always late paying out May the Rent could afford all that secret equipment, but that didn't matter. Like you said, it was fun to watch and that was all that mattered as a kid. It does seem a bit too silly now in comparison to the 60s and 90s shows, especially the We Need a Cute Animal on the show, Ms. Lion. This wouldn't be a series that I would seek out, but if it happens to be on somehow, then I wouldn't turn it off. Personally, though, I always preferred the Incredible Hulk cartoon that was out at this time. That felt a lot closer to the comics, even taking a blonde Rick Jones and the incredible reappearing clothes into account. And the fact that Banner didn't want to be the Hulk gave it a bit more bite than Spider-Man had. Considering the conversation you and I had nearly two years ago, yes, it has been that long, you know I'm looking forward to more Fall Guy talk from you. Well, yeah. God, I can't believe it's been that long. That is, uh, that is quite a while that we did that uh, that Fall Guy episode. Anyway, glad you enjoyed the animation episode. The next email is from Dan Doherty and actually goes back to Jazz Johnny and his animated friends. So we're talking about the John Romita issues and the uh, Amazing Friends animated episode. Hello, Andy. Hello, Dan. Thank you for finally, 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 finally covering the Lee Romita run, even if it was just the first year of it. I understand that there was a lot of starting and stopping with John Romita Sr.'s run on Amazing Spider-Man, but only covering the books up to and including Spider-Man No More makes me want more. Always leave your audience begging for more. It's the way it should be. Up to this point, Romita has only just begun to get into his groove on Spider-Man. As you yourself pointed out, his action sequences in these early issues weren't nearly as dynamic as we would see later. I don't know about you, but when I think of John Romita knockout drag-out fight scenes, I immediately think of Spider-Man going toe-to-toe with the kingpin of crime. If you ever decide to do more Lee Romita, and at the very least I'd like to hear you cover the Tablet of Time storyline with the Kingpin, Silvermane and Man Mountain Marco, and maybe compare it to the 90s animated series adaptation from series 2. Speaking of animated series, I thoroughly enjoyed your Animation Nation episode. With the exception of Batman the Animated Series, I don't think I've ever heard you talk about what cartoons you watched growing up in the UK. I've never seen Battle of the Planets, but based on the main title song you played and the fact that Casey Kasem was part of the voice cast, even the voiceover announcer audio-wise, Battle of the Planets sure sounds exactly like the Super Friends, a show you keep saying you've never seen. I've heard the theme of the Super Friends, and it's... um. Its similarity to Battle of the Planet is quite remarkable. I would have to agree. Marvel Productions Dungeons & Dragons cartoon is another show I missed as a kid, although I have occasionally seen it playing in the background of my local comic shop. Spider-Man and his amazing friends, however, I am very familiar with. I love this show, but it's a little too kid-friendly. I actually prefer the 1981 solo Spider-Man cartoon, which, unlike Amazing Friends, focused more on Peter Parker and the problem of being a superhero ad in his life. The 81 cartoon had something else, continuing storylines, at least one major storyline. Of the 26 episodes produced, six centred around Professor Allen's favourite character, Doctor Doom. While Doctor Doom, Master of the World, written by Jeffrey Scott, works as a standalone story, Larry Parr wrote five Doom-centric episodes that ran throughout the entire series. Beginning with The Doctor Prescribes Doom and continuing with the ABCs of D-O-O-M, Canon of Doom, The Doom Report, and concluding with Countdown to Doom, these episodes felt with Doom's attempts at world domination, a Latverian resistance movement, and a final showdown between Spider-Man and Doom that really it was quite final. It's worth checking out. Until next time, may you never run out of web fluid. Sincerely, Dan Doherty.
Well, thank you very much, Dan. Uh, thank you very much, Jean. Uh, I'm looking at the time. It's one of those situations where it has worked against me. Time is the fire in which we burn. Time is the currency which we cannot buy. And I have to go and do something else. So I'm going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you for joining me, as ever. Hope you enjoyed this. Um, probably only me talking about Magnum when everyone else is talking about Doctor Who, but there you go. Uh, the Palace of Glittering Lights is a Two True Freaks presentation. A proud member of the network. Go along, click on the Amazon link. You know the drill by now. Buy your stuff. It keeps the lights on. All that stuff. It's very nice. Uh, you can email me at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you have anything to say about this or any other episode. And I will return next time with something. For the first time in ages, I have not got an episode on the boil. I've not got a clue. Just have to see what takes my fancy, tickles my ivories, as it were. And remember, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. Everything's going to be fine. <laughs>